1: Welcome back to another Hindu Studies Channel podcast of the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my academic background at Rajbalkaran.com slash academia. Uh, more importantly, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Antonia Ruffel of Oxford University. She's in the Department of Linguistics, Philology, and Phonetics, and we are going to dive into her brand new Sanskrit grammar book. Hello Antonia, thank you for joining us.
0: Hi Raj, thank you for having me.
1: All right, so um, this is different uh, than most of our new books which are related to a specific area of study, whether it's a ethnographic study or a literary study. Uh, this is a book that helps people learn a language mm-hmm. um, and as we'll probably will make clear by the end of this interview, it is um, Nonetheless, if not more so, exciting than the typical books we use, because it's not every day that we unearth a brand new Sanskrit reader. It must have been quite the enterprise for you.
0: Yes, it did take me about ten years to to complete it, sort of to bring it from the original idea to it actually being published.
1: Wow! Could you tell us a little bit about that process? I, I, I gather from your intro uh, that um, yeah, teaching Sanskrit and your students were also Um, A large part of the process, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about what goes into the process of birthing a Sanskrit grammar book?
0: Yes, of course. Um, So what happened was that um, in 2005, I got a job as a language lecturer at Cornell University in the U.S., and um, I was teaching Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, and I was rather happy with the Latin and Greek books that I had available for, for my classes. But with Sanskrit, I just found myself making more and more um, supplementary materials, things that um, would answer the questions that my students had. I also found that my my classes were very diverse. There were people with many different backgrounds, many different interests. I had, I had classicists, I had linguists, I had Um, people whose families originally came from India of, you know, various uh, academic backgrounds. So physicists, engineers, I had historians, I had um, anthropologists. And so the the, the books that, that, that I had or that I knew of at the time, they all addressed some of the questions that my students were asking or some of the interests that my students had. And so I was just making more and more things myself. And I mentioned this to, Um, someone that I knew from my time at Cambridge who was working for Cambridge University Press. And he said, Oh, I think the religious studies editor has been um, looking for someone to um, write a Sanskrit textbook for us. Would you be interested in putting your materials together and actually, you know, completing them so that um, a complete full textbook would result? And I said, yes, absolutely. And uh, that process just sort of took a little, little longer, um, uh, getting it approved with CUP, getting a contract from CUP, that was rather an, an involved thing. Um, but what what I did, so on the Sanskrit side of things, basically, I, um, well, I tried to make sure that all Sanskrit grammar that you need to know if you want to start reading Sanskrit texts, that that was contained in the book in a way that was accessible to someone who did not have any prior knowledge of language learning, of linguistics, um, of um, the methods of how to learn an ancient language. So many 19th century uh, Sanskrit textbooks, which are still in use, um, they very often assume that uh, students know Latin and Greek already. And so they know how to approach an ancient language. And uh, with 21st century students, that's just not the case. So I try to make sure that all the, um, all the uh, little little prompters, all the little bits of background that you need to learn a language um, as uh, joyfully as possible were included in the book. And my own personal background is as a comparative linguist. So I try to make sure that um, whenever knowledge of the history of the Sanskrit language or of comparative philology came in useful, that I'd include that in the book so that students could, could profit from that um, and could understand what was going on with Irregular forms things that looked difficult and so on could understand that rather than having to just just memorize it
1: no it certainly strikes me as both uh comprehensive and uh, an accessible well organized well laid out um sanskrit uh, reader and
0: thank you thank you that's 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 what my goal was
1: <laughs> well it, it's it's no small feat so um just to give our listeners a touch of background um, I started Sanskrit study in 2005. Um, mm-hmm. We used a book that was, I, I had a teacher at the University of Toronto. We we had uh, we, we were in a class, a uh, credit course at the time. Um, the book was actually uh, a teach yourself book, Sanskrit book by Michael Coulson.
0: Michael Coulson, yes.
1: And, and over the years, both for my personal study, also for um, students that, wish to learn Sanskrit, whether private or whether um, in an academic context. Uh, I'll use bits from Kulsin. I'll use bits from Deshpande. i mm-hmm. use bits from Robert Goldman's uh, textbook. And there really isn't a, a go-to for, for me anyhow. And really, this came on my radar for the purposes of this interview. And um, I really am immediately uh, considering Making this uh, text my go-to text because it's so well laid out.
0: <laughs> I'm so pleased to hear that.
1: <laughs> what um, so so a couple of questions that, that you know we've internalized this, but yes. let me ask you: This is a Hindu studies podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm a Hindu studies scholar, and I learned Sanskrit because I the work that I looked at was a Sanskrit text, which is probably obvious to our readers. Why is uh, knowledge of or study of Sanskrit um, crucial for Hindu studies? What is what is Sanskrit where, where like where does Sanskrit fit in, this ancient language?
0: Yes, well um for for religion or for any other tradition, there are basically two ways of passing on uh knowledge of 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 beliefs, of rituals, of traditions and so on, um uh, from one generation to the next. One is one is oral, so you would learn from your from your parents or from your grandparents, um how things are done basically. Um, But um, uh, if you want to get in touch directly with how, um, you know, what people believed, what people thought was important longer ago, then you have to read texts. And the the oldest texts that we have, the oldest Hindu texts that we have, um, are all written in Sanskrit. And um, of course there are translations available Um, You know, you can read, you can read, for example, the Bhagavad Gita. There are, you know, numerous translations that you can read. But I've always found that when you read a text that isn't just meant to be a sort of dry instruction manual, but that is meant to be um, literature. So that is meant to have a certain shape, a certain form, as well as a certain uh, contents. It's always so much more first of all, enjoyable to read it in the original yourself, because you can see not just what someone said, but how they said it. But also very often there are little um, uncertainties or little tricky passages in in most texts where a translator um, often will be tempted to choose one translation that is that is clearer than the original that makes sense to them they will choose the translation that they think um, is is the right one whereas um, when you look at the original text you can see that there is a certain that there is an uncertainty that there is room for interpretation and so on and if you are able to read these texts in the original then you can see exactly where ideas are coming from, where um, teachings are coming from, but also where um, differences in traditions come from. Because, you know, we could talk about, especially in, in the West, we talk about Hinduism as though it were this unified phenomenon, but no, you know, it's a, it's a huge variety of traditions, um, of, of, of beliefs, and um, it's interesting to see where certain differences come from. And if you can access those original texts, then you can see for yourself why people um, interpret different texts differently? For example,
1: so um, much in the way to use a crude analogy that, that Latin was um, the, the the linguistic currency of um, uh, the early days of of the church, for example. Sanskrit is in, this in ancient, Europe, yeah, right in Europe. Sanskrit was is this ancient language um, okay. in which. Um, rituals performed in which philosophy, uh, yeah, narrative, theology is, is written. And so Sanskrit really is the linguistic world of um, the foundations of what we call Hinduism.
0: Yes, exactly. Great. Yeah, the, the foundations of Hinduism. Um, later texts, of course, are, are, are written, are composed in um, many of the more recent languages of India. But the, the oldest texts, those would have been composed in Sanskrit, yes.
1: Yeah. So, really, those who would be interested in Sanskrit, learning Sanskrit, are really those who would be interested in in um, all things Indic. It seems um, in an yes. effort to, to deepen one's knowledge, whether it's learning about um, you know uh, history, you know, whether you're looking at a culinary text or a ritual text or a narrative text or or any sort of um, Indian thought, practice, culture. Is more often than not tied to the 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 Sanskrit uh, speaking world, uh, and the Sanskrit speaking world now, there's so many questions I have that are going to interest I think our our, our listeners. But mm-hmm. could you comment on this idea of the Sanskrit, quote unquote Sanskrit speaking world? Where, if any, uh, where if anywhere is Sanskrit spoken? Uh, is it or was it ever? Do you think a mother tongue? Could you could you unpack that a bit for us?
0: Yeah, well, that's a uh... That's, a very, that's an intricate question, and I'm probably not going to be able to give a sort of fully satisfying answer, but I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so we, th- there are basically two languages that we ought to look at, which are closely linked. Um, one we call Sanskrit, and the other one we call Vedic. Um, some people call it Vedic Sanskrit, but Vedic is, is, is I think, the, the better name for it. And uh, the thing is that um, we have these texts called the Vedas. Um, after which the name Vedic was was, was chosen, and these texts are um, very old. Uh, they date back to probably the, the second millennium BC, um, and they were ritual texts. They were they were hymns that would be that would be sung that would be performed during the um, rituals of the Vedic religion of the of the pre Hindu religion of what we find in especially northern India at that time. And um, these, these texts were extremely important for ritual practice uh, for a very long time, for many centuries. Um, but given that all languages change, given that spoken languages change, so for example, if you read an English text that's 200 years ago, there will be you know, words you don't understand, constructions you don't understand, and so on. Um, um, so because spoken languages change, people needed to make sure that these these ancient texts that were still important for their, for their daily ritual life um, remained intelligible. And so a grammarian tradition arose. Grammarians are people who try to write down the rules of a language. You know, how do you form plurals? How do you use this particular verb? How do you use a particular um, case, which is a uh, one one form in which nouns can appear, um, so they they um, uh, collated the, they collected and collated these rules, and um, this grammat- this grammarian tradition um, was very important was uh, very well looked after and at some point we have someone who um, brought this tradition to a kind of culmination um, his name is Panini. Um, we assume that he lived in around the 5th century BC and um, um, we think he lived somewhere in northern India. We're not exactly sure where. But basically his, his grammar, so his list of rules of the Sanskrit language, became, um, to, it became seen as authoritative, So, uh, uh, which had the result that not only was it used to help um, people understand earlier texts, but anyone who spoke or wrote in Sanskrit at that point used Panini's rules. So, from around the fifth century BC, this rule—sorry, uh, this, this this language, which was called Sanskrit, which basically means um, um, perfected or completed—or um, yeah, perfected or completed are probably the best translations here. Um, so, this 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 language, Sanskrit, um, from the fifth century BC onwards, did not Change did not change all at all anymore, and so all texts written in it since are basically basically intelligible to someone who learns um, these fifth century BC rules. So um, before Sanskrit came in, Vedic we assume would have been spoken at a time, but um, these these Vedic hymns they are very they are very artful, they are polished, they are beautiful, they are literature, and um, there, even though that language would presumably have been spoken, it's a little bit like um, uh, if you read twentieth or twenty-first century English literature. Um, very often, that will be, or especially if you read if you read poetry, that language, in a way, is being spoken, but it's probably not being spoken in as as polished, as thought through, in as artful a way. Yeah. So um, Vedic would have been spoken, but in a much more, you know, everyday fashion. Um, and uh, uh, many words would have been used that um, uh, are not needed in, a, in the ceremonial kind of context from which these hymns come. So uh, many words that people would have used back then, um, you know, for all sorts of everyday things, um, uh, you know, just don't survive. So a form of that language from the Vedic hymns we assume would have been spoken now when it comes to to Sanskrit um, that was the language of um, uh, of of literature um, of um, scholarship also to a certain extent um, from some uh, from some point on of of um well, not necessarily administration, but some sort of higher-up official official texts, um, to what extent it was spoken um, is we are not certain of. But um, given how well people wrote in it, p- given how how artfully, how beautifully, how fluently people wrote Sanskrit, it seems very likely that these people would also be able to have um, uh, educated conversations in Sanskrit, so my personal assumption is that yes, these people would have been able to speak Sanskrit um, uh, at least with other you know equally educated, equally literarily active uh, friends or acquaintances.
1: thank you for this for that uh, for that comprehensive response. There are a couple of themes in uh, what you said, a uh, couple aspects of the language that I would like to draw out for the sake oh. of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, something uh, something that uh, Antonia mentioned is that Sanskrit, um, su- the word Sanskrit is an anglicization of an actual Sanskrit word. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanskrit, so um, well-made, refined, polished. Mm-hmm. And that is quite an apt description for the language because it is both... Um, very beautiful acoustically, and it from the from the moment that I learned the the alphabet um, and onwards, it is extraordinarily organized. It is an insanely organized language. I mean, you know, I don't know many other uh, languages. Uh, you know, French, the German, English, obviously, um, uh, but there, but there's the there was obviously a great deal of emphasis on uh structure and n- the production of sound with sanskrit would you would you agree
0: um yes i would say that the ancient grammarians who i mentioned earlier for them it was very important to have things very very neatly arranged um and not and sanskrit is is you know highly suited for that so the the sounds that we have in sanskrit um uh can be very systematically arranged are very systematic, but um, for example, uh, the, the system of sounds. So when you um, you start them with, you start with the vowels, first the simple vowels then the more complex vowels and so on. Um, but when you go through this, the R-R-E-E-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U, um, then actually um, the, the long vocalic L sounds, so the L sound, that doesn't actually occur in Sanskrit, but it was um, added by grammarians to this list so that you arrive at a list that is complete, that is that is balanced, that is systematic, and so on. And actually having it there, having, that, having it in that list when you learn Sanskrit, it makes it a lot easier if you can just learn something regular rather than memorize regular bits and oh yeah, and then there's this one irregular little hole in it. So sh- short answer would be, yes, there is, um, Sanskrit um, is, uh, a, is a very systematic language, however, um, that is the case with, with many languages and the systematic um, uh, sort of perfected or polished character of Sanskrit uh, comes out particularly clearly in or through the Sanskrit grammarian tradition where systematizing is very important. But for many, you know, pedagogically very sound reasons, I find.
1: So Sanskrit will have some... uh, uh, I'll assume that most of our listeners are native English speakers and perhaps primarily or only speak English. Um, Mm -hmm. Sanskrit will have some features uh, that that would be new to uh, English speakers. Could you maybe unpack... um, because you lay them out systematically in your book, but there are yeah. there are issues of uh, number, uh, gender, declensions. Maybe say a bit about um, the features of Sanskrit that um, it's not it's not quite the case where one translates from an English sentence into a Sanskrit construction the way one might in in, in, in a modern language like Italian or or, or even German or French. Mm-hmm. There, there's a very different uh, way in which the language is constructed, and maybe you can talk about that a bit.
0: Yes, happily. Um, this is one of the many things that I find beautiful about Sanskrit. Um, so in, in, in English, if I want to express some kind of a, an idea about an action, such as, you know, I go, then um, the fact that it is me, that it is I who's doing the going, is expressed in a separate word. I the, the, the me who's doing the going, and go expressing what kind of action I'm doing. If I want to um, say that I'm not doing this right now, but I will do it tomorrow, then I would say something like, I will go. So each of these aspects of who is doing something, when are they doing it, um, would be expressed with a separate word. I will go, you will go, he will go, I have gone, and so on. Now, in Sanskrit, what you typically do with almost all forms is um, uh, that you have a what we call a verbal root, which is a um, minimal entity, which is the minimal, formally minimal bit that expresses an action: doing, going, seeing, eating, laughing, and so on. Um, and to that, you then add things in front of the root, into the root, and behind the root to express an idea that in English or also many other modern languages would be expressed with um, or by means of several words. So um, um, I, so the route for for to go is gum. Now the um, way of expressing that I am doing something is the ending army. And um, if I want to express that I'm not doing it right now, but I'll be doing it in the future. Then what I need to do is add a little bit in between the root and the and the ending, and that is the form "ishya" in this case. so gamishyami would then be the equivalent that's one word would be the equivalent to English "I will go And um, you have the same thing with, um, uh, with, with nouns. so in English, if I want to express what function a noun is playing in a sentence, so for example I'm cutting the cake. With a knife, Um, I clean the knife, Um, this is a sheath for the knife. Then, what I do is I always add this little preposition before and in front of the noun. So, for the knife, with the knife, from the knife, and so on. Um, Or sometimes I don't add a preposition at all, Um, I just put the knife in a particular sentence, sorry, a particular position in the sentence. So for example, the knife cuts the cake, for example. The knife stands before the verb, and that indicates it's the subject. I see the knife, the knife comes behind the verb, that indicates it's the object. So not the, so not the thing that's doing something, but that has something done to it. And in Sanskrit, um, what you do for, for all of these, um, in, rather than having position being the crucially important factor or prepositions being important, you just add a set of endings. So um, uh, a knife would be shastram. And if you do something uh, by means of a knife, it would be shastrena. Um, If uh, you are um, cleaning crumbs off the knife, away from the knife, that would be shastrat, and so on. And um, this um, adding endings and suffixes and prefixes and infixes, so adding things behind and front and into a stem or a root is what we call synthetic. And there are a number of ancient languages, especially ancient Indo-European languages, um, that are synthetic. Sanskrit is one of them. Um, And I personally just find that, I don't know, I find it beautiful.
1: It's beautiful. Um, It's beautiful both in terms of organization and in terms of uh, the way it sounds, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. It's
1: it's quite beautiful. So just um, just randomly, like the, the, the language... The lang- why it's called Sanskrit or purified or refined is that the language is set up such that only certain sounds can come in contact with certain sounds. This the rules of elision, um, mm-hmm. so that it sounds beautiful. And, and uh, there's so much Sanskrit, but um, just just to give the the listeners a sense, here's here's something from here's the beginning of uh, the Sri Sukta. It's a it's a hymn to to the feminine divine in the form of uh, Sri, like abundance, prosperity, and if I remember, where it goes something like It just it has this this flow that isn't quite there in modern languages, is it?
0: Um, I would say that you know the the the, la- the beauty of each language is is different. And Sanskrit has a very intricate and very ancient tradition of uh, chanting texts that makes them extremely beautiful to listen to. Yes, Um, I always I'm always a little hesitant when it comes to saying, you know, one language is is better than another language in a certain way. Because if you listen to. um, So, for example, my own my own native tongue, German. Um, supposedly, is so you know guttural and rough and awful and whatnot. But when I listen to German poetry or when I listen to a German play being performed, I don't I don't necessarily find that. I find that it's it's quite different from uh, listening to someone perform uh, Sanskrit poetry or Sanskrit hymns. But um, the the question of you know what is better, um, I'm always very hesitant to to, um, uh, to 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 answer because there are so many different forms of beauty
1: that is a wonderful perspective the, to to note that um, various languages have features that are unique to them and beautiful uh, yes in, in whatever they 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 accomplish um
0: and and one one feature of that that i very much like um concerning sanskrit is that um uh, um sanskrit not only you know, composes its, its individual word forms, so its individual verbs, its individual nouns, and so on with all these um, affixes. But uh, Sanskrit has this feature called compounding, which other languages have as well, but Sanskrit has made it into an art form. So um, an example of a, a compound in English would be toothbrush, um, you know, which is a brush for your teeth, or a, a treehouse, which is a house in a tree, there's lots of examples that you can give, but uh, in Sanskrit, um, you can form compounds that express um, um, whole, um, whole little stories, basically. I think um, one example that you might also know from, from, from Coulson's textbook, um, he describes how to build up compounds, um, larger compounds from smaller compounds. And the one example that he gives is completely cool from the recent evening bath. And um, he 's absolutely right. that is something that in Sanskrit you can express as as one word, and um, that is something where Sanskrit truly does excel and is um, much more intricate and you could even say you know better than most other languages
1: and it's part of the reason why you may see a verse for example if you're whether you're studying it or not, maybe you are looking at the Bhagavad Gita in English, and the the edition has the the Sanskrit verse, and you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, there are these two squiggly lines in Sanskrit. How come there's like eight, eight lines of English text? And part of that is because the language is so, so compactable in that um, you have endings to indicate um, all kinds of things, and you can compound them in, in ways. Would you agree? It's much yes. more compact, much more compact language
0: uh yes well i think I think it's a phenomenon that translators have have found um across languages that the 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 language into which you translate something always turns out to be a little longer than the than the um original language because if the original language was written by a by someone who knew how to how to use this language how to play with this language then they will have it in a form that is that is um um I don't want to say compact, that sounds so utilitarian, that will be concise, that will be economical, that will not waste anything. um, And still, at the same time, they will be expressing the exact idea that they're trying to express. Um, uh, So that, I think, is a and then if you try and translate this, you are necessarily dealing with longer sentences, slightly longer phrasings, if you want to um, bring across the exact same contents, the exact same ideas. That's something that I think is uh, the case across all languages, but you are absolutely right. It is the case even more so with a language such as Sanskrit where um, so much information can be uh, packed up into into just one, um, either into one compound or just one verb form and so on. Yes. And and the nice thing if you know Sanskrit is then that you can see exactly with each verse, with each line, um, how one Sanskrit word then unfolds into a whole phrase or maybe even a whole clause in English.
1: So you've told us about um, case endings. Could you yeah. tell us about, for those who may be thinking of um, diving into the ocean of Sanskrit and mm-hmm. some of the features they might see there, can you say a little bit about the numbers and the genders and um, uh, sandhi, uh, elision?
0: Yes. So I'll start with the, with the numbers and the genders. So, number, when you use that as a linguistic or as as a kind of technical term, uh, means a form that expresses how many of something you're talking about. In English, we've got two grammatical numbers, that's singular and plural. So, for example, I can talk about one cat, but as soon as there is more than one cat, I would talk about two cats, or one dog, two dogs, one king, two kings, and so on. In Sanskrit, there is a third number. And that is the so-called duel, spelled D-U-A-L, so not, not to do with D-U-E-L, with, with dueling, with fighting. Um, so the, the duel, which talks about exactly two. So I would have um, a form for one man, that would be Nara. I would have one form for two men, that's narao. And then I would have a form for more than two men, so that would in English would be, uh, which in English would be the plural, which would be Nara. Um, and every noun has a full set of forms for just one, exactly two, and more than two. And every verb has a set of forms for um, uh, I do this, you do this, he/she/it does it in the singular. The two of us, the two of you, the two of them do it in the dual, and we, you, they in the plural. So this idea, this 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 category of of exactly two is expressed very, very precisely in each noun form uh, or in each verb form. So that was, that was um, the, uh, the category of number. Now, the other category that you just asked about was, sorry. There's, uh,
1: there's also, oh, no problem. I'll just say one quick comment. I, you know, it was, yeah. there was, uh, when we first started learning Sanskrit, it was like, wow, we have to learn a singular, a plural, and a dual. And yeah. it was, and, and you know, it occurred to me that the dual is so very convenient um, yes. in, the, in the human experience, when it comes to two things in particular, body parts, it's so intuitive to say for a word to have two hands, two eyes, two feet, and also relationships like exactly when, when you say this, oftentimes there'll be two people whether they're 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 whether they're uh, you know parent and child or teacher disciple or or lovers like um they two or we two and it's it's convenient when it comes to relationships and body parts in terms of understanding why. Uh, why a culture would come up for a specific case for just two things, isn't it?
0: Yes. Yes. It It is, it is extremely convenient. It is um, uh, confusing for people who are not used to it, but um, that should never be a, you know, a category. That's that's a category for language learners. If you're not used to something from your own language, then it's more difficult to remember using it uh, when, when you are using that other language. But um uh, i've I I've, I've, I've found exactly what you just described that it comes in very handy on all sorts of occasions and I once took a um, an intensive course in in spoken Sanskrit one summer uh, several years ago, and um, one uh day the, the the homework that we were set was to um, retell a story that we liked in sanskrit and there is a story that 's written by a German author about a, a pair of um twins. Who didn't know that they were twins until they meet at a summer camp. Um, there's various American movies based on that story. But, um, anyways, uh, so um, I, I decided to retell that story because I very much liked it. Um, and I also thought this is going to give me, um, you know, really good exercise on the duel because <laughs> the two girls then do all sorts of things together. And it was funny because I. I knew that this was what I was doing. I had set myself this task. I am going to write about these two exactly so that I can practice my dual. But so very often, I would remember to put the noun into the dual, but then use a plural verb because in my mind, you know, German is exactly the same as English. We have a singular and we have a plural. In my mind, as soon as I talk about more than one person doing something, I automatically use the plural. So Sanskrit is um, has a, an extra nuance of of preciseness there. One... <laughs> Exactly one, exactly two, or, well, more than
1: two. And it also has a, another degree of preciseness when it comes to gender, doesn't it?
0: Yes, oh, gender was the other question, yes, indeed. So um, uh, if you start from, on, on the basis of English, gender is basically something that we only really have in, in pronouns. So pronouns are words like he, she, or it, or that, or they, um, and um, in English, uh, if I refer to anyone who is uh, alive, and considered uh, a male, um, or a man, um, uh, or you know, whether that's a, a, an adult, or, or a boy, or um, also a, a, a male animal, then we would refer to them as he. Um, same, if they're, if they're alive, but they are female, then we would refer to them as, as she, and anything else is referred to as as it. And so that we automatically make this choice that, you know, if I see a house, I know I refer to it as it because it's not alive. I see a person, I refer to them as, as he or she because I know they're alive. Um, this is us having internalized the rules of, of grammatical gender as they apply to, to English. Now, in Sanskrit, you have the same thing. Um, so whenever I refer to a noun, I have to choose between a masculine, a feminine and a neuter pronoun. So masculine is he. The is she, neuter is it, except that in Sanskrit um, you can tell just by looking at a word um, uh, what gender it is. Very often the the ending, the, the last couple of letters of the word will tell you what gender it is. Um, and even if that isn't the case and with some nouns, then any adjective that describes a noun um, will have to uh, take on the, the form that is right for the gender of that noun. So, for example, um, a uh, a house in Sanskrit, gurham is is neuter, and so if I want to describe a uh, a say a beautiful house, then I would say sundaram gurham. But if I wanted to describe a tree, virksha, um, which is masculine then I wouldn't, I couldn't say Sundaram Brickshach, I would have to say Sundarach Brickshach. So in the, in the form of the adjective, I have to indicate um, that it is masculine so that I can use it together with a masculine noun. So the system is very similar in, in its foundations to what we have in English, but once more, it's, it's a lot more intricate. And for the, for the language learner, at first it is, it is, um, you know, it is extra work because you need to memorize what gender is this word. Uh, but if you are reading a text, then that's it's actually going to be very helpful very soon, because um, if you see a feminine adjective, you know that this can only be describing a feminine noun. And if you're not quite sure which noun it is describing, you just look for the noun that has the same gender and otherwise also the same ending or the same, same case and the same gender as, as this adjective, and you'll know which adjective to translate with which noun
1: Lovely now the th- the third thing that I'd asked about that if you can share with us is uh,
0: Sunday. yes su-
1: Sunday um, um, maybe just uh, just give a taste of what Sunday is and how it functions and mm-hmm. and uh, my sense is that it's it, it, it goes a long way towards preserving both the the acoustic beauty of the language and the ease, mm-hmm. on, the th- and the ease on the tongue, but I'm, I'm happy to learn what you think is going on with sandhi.
0: Well, so sandhi literally means um, putting together. The D comes from a root Dha, which means to put, and Sam just means together. And um, Sam D becomes sandhi because an N is more e- is easier to pronounce in front of the D. They're both pronounced with your tongue against your teeth. Um, then some D would be. Uh, that, that would be to pronounce samdi. So the word samdi is already an, a case or an instance of this phenomenon samdi. And samdi is, is the term that is used to express the changes in, pronunci- in pronunciation that occur when two sounds meet. So that can be at the end of a word and the beginning of the next word, or that can be um, within words. So I was talking about how you may have to add an ending or something in front of a a root, or you may even have to add something into a root. So when that happens, new sounds meet, and to make them um, fluidly pronounceable, their pronunciation often often changes. And the way in which it changes is that things usually become more similar to each other. So for example, um uh in, in, in English, we, we do have instances of sandhi, but they're nowhere near as, as systematic as those that we find in um that we find in so they're nowhere near as systematic as what we find in Sanskrit. Um so for example, if you talk about a hand bag, so a bag that you hold in your hand, so a bag of a certain size and certain format, um, that will very rarely be pronounced handbag. Usually it's much more something like handbag. And what happened here was that the nd of the hand in front of the b of bag didn't stay as a nd, so the sound pronounced with the tongue against your teeth, nd, uh, changed to something that was more similar to the, to the following sound. Um, uh, so what followed was a b, which you pronounce with your, with your lips pushed together. And so instead of having a nd, we now get a m, so we get a bag. So a m is pronounced with your lips, a b is pronounced with your lips, and this is a lot easier to pronounce than a handbag. Or this also happens um, uh, with the sound n very frequently. In in English, we have this this letter n um, that actually represents all sorts of different sounds. If I use the word n in the verb to send, uh, so to send a letter for example, then what the n represents, the letter n represents, is a sound that is pronounced with your tongue against your teeth. It's send. And that's because the the d that follows after this n is a a, a sound that is also pronounced with your tongue against your teeth. So send, is very easy to pronounce. However, if I have a uh, a, a, a verb such as sing, Uh, then we still spell that with the letter N, but the letter N doesn't actually represent the sound N, the the dental tongue-against-your-teeth sound, but it's sing, so it's a ng sound. Uh, And this ng sound is a lot easier to pronounce in front of the g that comes at the end of the verb sing. Um, And so what we've got here is what in Sanskrit terms you would call internal sandi. So sounds changing their pronunciation so that they roll off the tongue more easily. Now, in English, we have this phenomenon, as I just tried to show, but we don't really represent it in writing. You know, I use this letter N to um, uh, represent a variety of sounds. In Sanskrit, they are very much aware of of how things are pronounced and how pronunciation changes when, when sounds meet, and they represent that in writing. So, for example, in Sanskrit, you would represent the sound N, with with one letter, but you would represent the sound "m" as in sing, with a completely different letter because it's a completely different sound. And um, sandi is something that is represented in Sanskrit in a completely systematic way, um, which means that we know exactly how things are pronounced. But it also means that it's um, it makes texts a little more difficult to read because if you have one word such as narach, meaning man, um, and this this ach sound at the end of the word is changed depending on what sound follows, what, what the next word is, um, then all of a sudden you're not just dealing with one word, man, anymore, but you're dealing with five or six different looking words that underlyingly all are the same so while while Sunday is wonderful for teaching us about the the pronunciation of words and uh, preserving sounds ancient sounds for the for the reader it can present especially for the for the beginning reader it can present quite the challenge
1: and so because of these various moving parts of case mm-hmm. endings and genders and uh, numbers and elision it is um, vital to have a text that lays the various layers out in a systematic, and digestible way. So, um, so I encourage the listener to not be intimidated. If learning Sanskrit <laughs> is something that 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 calls to you, it's uh, the payoff is huge in terms of access access to worlds within worlds of ideas of. Of invocations of um, of poetry, uh, so there's a there's a vast array of material that one can access.
0: Beauty, uh, poetry, wisdom. There's so much. Um, if I could just go very go back very briefly to what you just said, um, you 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 uh, were exactly right when you said that um, you know it's very important that if you want to learn all this information, and yes, Sanskrit is intricate to learn. It's extremely important to have things. You know, clearly laid out to have clear tables and so on, um, and that's that's exactly why I what I tried to do in my book. I tried to make the things that you cannot understand but where you need to to memorize. I try to make them as visually appealing and visually um, sort of well, not impressive, but to sort of they, they try to make them such that they leave an impression on the just the the visual part of your brain. Um, just trying to make them as easy as possible to, to remember, to memorize, simply because, yes, there's quite a few of them. That is the main difficulty in learning Sanskrit, that there are so many different little forms to memorize. And so what a a Sanskrit textbook needs to do is uh, be aware of that and then be aware of all the pedagogical techniques that are at our uh, disposal to make this memorization as, as pain-free as possible.
1: So, Tell us a bit about uh, the, the pedagogical approach or, um, yeah, the, the way in which the book is set up and, uh, to teach the reader, to have the reader learn with the teacher. Maybe mention the fact that it's not just a book. One has access to online resources.
0: Yes. So, um, as I said, a big thing for me is trying to make a memorization as there I say, as easy as possible, or more realistically put, as, as pain-free as possible. So just going back to Sunday very briefly, um, whenever I introduce Sunday um, in, in any of the classes that I teach, um, if I do not have any students going pale or, you know, starting to look slightly tearful, then I, I see this as a successful lesson. Sunday <laughs> is something that overwhelms pretty much everyone. Um, I, I have yet to meet a student who just goes, oh, yeah, that's a piece of cake. Ideally, after a couple of lessons, I will have them understand the principle behind at least some Sunday changes. Um, and then they will go, oh, well, obviously it's that and that. But it always takes at least a couple of lessons. Um, so I, um, I learned Sanskrit through self-study. I learned it uh, using the book that, 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 that you uh, mentioned earlier, Kulsen's Teach Yourself Sanskrit. And uh, while I had someone who I could from time to time turn to when it came to questions, you know, bits that I didn't understand in the book, um, most of my, my Sanskrit studies were basically just me trying to figure out the book. And um, I just found that there were some things in there that were, that were very good um, and, and other things where um, the, the information was presented on the, on the page, but in such a way that it was really, really difficult to take in. So what I try to make, do is very systematically in, in my book was um, whenever there is something that needs to be memorized, it will be in a clearly laid out table. The layout w- won't change from one table to the next so that you know, the amount of extraneous information you have to take in is minimal. Um, it will be, there will be lots of space around it for your own notes. Um, I always encourage my students to do you know, whatever works for them to memorize, so whether they want to color code things, whether they want to, you know, write things in different fonts. So, for example, all the singular uh, forms, if you want to um, uh, have them in a times New Roman, in the dual forms, in I don't know Helvetica or some completely different font. Anything that works for you, anything uh, that allows you to may remember things more easily, um, uh, is is um, fair game as far as I'm concerned. And so to a certain extent, you can do that in a book that's to be used by many different people. And so the the, the clear layout, the formatting was something that I found was very, very important um, throughout. And um, also, I I know from my own experience that it's important uh, to be able to have one place where you can look up all information that you're vaguely familiar with, that you know you should know, but that you've already forgotten because it was from three weeks ago or something. So I've put... uh, um, detailed um, uh, reference grammar in the back where basically all the forms, all the tables are neatly laid out uh, in, in one place where you can find them easily whenever you're reading a text. Now, so that's just for the, for the visual part of it. Um, the, the other thing that I, that I tried to do um, as best I could was um, explain whatever is going on rather than just um, give people the forms and say, okay, you know, here, learn them. Um, with with vocabulary, very often the only thing that you can do is uh, give people the words to learn and ask them to learn them. Um, you can encourage them to say, you know, if something reminds you of something else, if something sounds similar to something else, you can use that to help you remember that particular word. Um, but that's not something very systematic. Um, when I when I was teaching at a, at a secondary school, my youngest students were eleven and twelve, and they came up with a, with the best mnemonics. So, for example, in um, uh, in Sanskrit, there is a word turnum, meaning grass. And in London, close to where I was teaching, there was a um, underground stop called turnum green. And because turnum, "turnum," is green, you can remember that turnum means grass. So I try to encourage these things for vocabulary. But the, the big thing that I try to do is encourage understanding the systems behind all the grammatical parts, so behind Behind, um, uh, especially things like like the Sunday, or things that you add to roots in order to form particular words, and so on. But sorry, I think I just interrupted you. You sounded as though you were about to say something.
1: No, it's fine. I was going to comment on how clever the <laughs> the, the turn of Greek. <laughs> yes, yes, um, uh, and also, um, would you say this that this text is ideally suited for self study, study with a teacher, or equally both?
0: I'm I'm hoping that it is that it is useful for both, and um, I've had lots of um, um, reports from people who used it on their own, or also in classrooms who were um, who seemed to think that it worked, you know, for either setup. Um, what I what I did so that it becomes useful for for self study is um, I've added lots and lots of um, additional material. So the book has a website. Um, uh, Cambridge-Sanskrit.org, um, where I basically have links to all the online resources. Um, that's uh, various things to download, so the handouts for learning how to write using the Devanagari script, um, the uh, the reference grammar from the back of the book, so that you don't always have to um, leaf back and forth and back and forth in the book. You can just, you know, get it from the website, print it out, and have it next to you. Um, uh, it has links to all the online flashcards that I've put up. Uh, I find that memorizing things where there is no real system, where you just have to memorize lots of different individual entities, I can do that best if I don't have these forms on um, uh, on a page, but um, on individual flashcards. I used to make these just on, on paper or sort of cardboard flashcards, but now um, we've got all these online programs available where um, you can put each form that is to be memorized on a card. On the back of the of this electronic card, you put the answer, you put the identification, and then the computer guides you and remembers which forms you got right, which forms you didn't get right. So the computer, the, the program will, will quiz you. You don't need help from anyone else. You can do it all on your own, um, which is very handy, I think. Um, I use these a lot. Um, and then the, the other thing that I've done is um, the main difference between learning something yourself and um, learning it with a teacher um, is, of course, that, you know, the teacher is there to present new material, is to is there to introduce new material to you. And um, uh, when, you, when you just read something in a book, sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't make sense. If you've got a teacher, you can ask them questions. And um, I'm unfortunately not there for everyone to answer their, their individual questions. But what I've done is I've made a recording of um, me presenting the material from each new chapter in the same way in which I would present it if I was teaching you in a classroom. So that way, each student who's sitting, you know, somewhere on their own at home, as long as they have an internet connection, they basically have me presenting the material to them.
1: So it really does function in many ways like an online course. And there's a wealth of material at the website, actually YouTube videos and whatnot. So it's, it's, really, um, it's really a comprehensive resource for self-study.
0: I, I, w- I wanted to make it that way because I know that there are so many people who want to learn Sanskrit, who um, either are not in the right place geographically or just don't have the time to take a regular Sanskrit course. Um, Sanskrit, unfortunately, isn't taught in that many places in um, you know in, in in northern North America or in or in Europe. Um, and my hope was that with with this book and with all the online resources that go with it. Um, you can get as close as possible to taking taking an actual Sanskrit course. Um, one of the one of the main difficulties I find when you teach yourself, which I remember from when I taught myself uh, Sanskrit, um, is how to how to pace yourself, how to know when you've made enough progress for a day or for the week or something like that. Which is why I also often I also offer. Um, uh, online courses where I do just that. Um, so if you 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 sign up, you know, you just um, sign up to a Google group. It's 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 all free. You get weekly emails from me in which I then suggest this is a good portion of material to work on for over the course of this week. I I assume you would need around three hours to to complete the work. Um, and here are the online resources that I've put up. Here are the relevant pages in the book. And then finally, here is the Facebook group that you can join to um, ask any questions that you might have about this week's material or about the material from past weeks and so on. And um, on that Facebook group, I I answer whenever I can. But at this point, there's also quite a number of, of other students who then happily chime in and say, oh, no, I think it works like this. It works like that and so on. So that was my attempt at providing a Sanskrit course that is accessible anywhere that you have an internet connection, basically.
1: No, it's a, it's a brilliant hybrid of a of a of a uh, hybrid's Maybe not the best word, but it's it's a textbook that um, it's a cross between a textbook and an online course. It seems it's it's yeah, both. I,
0: I think hybrid hybrid isn't isn't such a bad word. I think that's 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 quite apt. Yes, it's it's, it's somewhere between the two, or at least that that, that was what my what my hope was. Um, I you know I I love teaching Sanskrit um, in a classroom setting, and I do it as much as I can. Um, but there's just a lot that you, you know, that, that, that you cannot do. There are people, um, you know, there's, there's people who've learned Sanskrit with this book who are in Australia and, you know, I communicate with them as much as I can simply because it's fun, but there is just no way that we could get together in, in a classroom setting. Um, and so, uh, uh, to communicate with people, um, you know, in the, in the U S in, 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 in Canada, in, in South America, um, and in, I think at this point I've had students from every continent except Antarctica, as far as I know. So to be able to communicate with them in in this way isn't isn't ideal, but it sort of comes a close second, which makes me very happy.
1: It's um it's actually I had my own prejudices against um, online learning, uh, but in 2016 I ended up um, founding an, an online academy where we looked at mythological stories. It, it was called Power of Myth at the time. It was an homage to. To Campbell's famous PBS Mm -hmm. series and I actually um it it was transformative for me to understand how transformative online learning can be and there are many classes after which you had to give yourself a shake because it wasn't um obvious in the moment that 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 you were on different continents (laughs) there's, there's a sense of immediacy that uh really um for folks who have who you know folks who were adults before the internet became so huge, um, it's, it's counterintuitive to think that you can have such um, a palpable connection with someone in the moment who is um, hundreds of miles away. And so often on- it
0: comes with, with a picture and the sound quality is good and it doesn't you know, um, uh, cost you that much or it doesn't cost anything very often. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's rather wonderful. And um, I think as, as, you know, as educators, as pedagogues, it's really important to um, see what new developments there are and, and make the best of them um, uh, in, in, in the resources that we provide for our students. And I'm okay. sure that what I've, what I've created is already, you know, so 2017. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for people who say, oh, you know, there is this new platform, there is this new, there is this new program, there's this new software, um, wouldn't you consider... Um, creating something for that platform, um, and so uh, I, from time to time I do that. Sometimes I find that my students just do these things themselves, um, and then 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 show to me what they've got. So it's it's wonderful.
1: Oh, given given that the that this text evolved from you know various student needs and various uh, pedagogical needs over the course of years, it it really. It really is, in many ways, the textbook that we, we wish we had when we started out, which is the best. You know, it's the best kind of product. This is how you develop a, a great product or solution, or um, what have, If I if I go give talks for um, Altac stuff or online um, learning or this or that,
0: it's yeah. always
1: a case where what do I wish that someone told me when I started out or someone provided, and so it's it's obviously has this, this organic intuitive feel and given it's given its online presence um, and the extent to which it lends itself to distance learning. I really think it's, it's poised to um, change the way a lot of folks learn Sanskrit or maybe grant access to Sanskrit. I want to ask as maybe, uh, we've taken a fair bit of your time for today. So we'll, we'll close shortly, but perhaps you can share with our listeners, um, uh, you know, two questions, two thoughts come to mind. Share with them. You know, so who should learn Sanskrit? You know, obviously people are interested in Hinduism or Hindu texts, Hindu Sanskrit texts in some way. But but it's more than that. And in your perspective, much more than my training shows that it's much more than people who want to learn uh, specifically about the Hindu texts. So who who should learn Sanskrit? And um, who? What's your advice to them in terms of how to learn the language?
0: Right. Um, I think there are many different reasons for why someone might want to learn Sanskrit. Um, obviously, if you are interested in anything relating to India, you know, it doesn't just have to be um, Hinduism, which of course is a, is a you know, very big part of, of, Indian, of Indian culture and the Indian everyday life. Um, but anything to do with India, with um, Indian history, um, uh, Indian thought, Indian philosophies, Um, uh, Sanskrit is the language um, that will grant you access to all of the texts in which um, the seminal thoughts are contained. Um, So if you have um, uh, an interest in anything India-related in in particular, then Sanskrit is the way to go. Um, However, I think that Sanskrit is such a source of, of, of beauty and of wisdom that uh, even for people who you know, up to this point weren't particularly interested in India or didn't know anything uh, about it, have never been there, um, um, they might still enjoy it very much, because it is a language. Well, going back to what you were saying earlier, you know the, the very systematic character of the language. Um, in Sanskrit, many linguistic features are available that in, or are clearly visible um, and are used regularly that um, in other languages are there only in traces or in sort of irregular forms. So, um, uh, for example, in, in, um, if you want to learn ancient Greek, there is this thing called my verbs, which gives great headaches to any student who first attempts understanding them. But I remember I once had students um, who were trying to understand them and I said, oh, but, you know, it's easy. You already know Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, we just basically call them, you know, we call them athematic verbs and you've had lots and lots of experience with them. So, you know, here you go. It's, it's, it's really straightforward. You already know this thing from Greek. You already know this from Sanskrit. Um, in, in Sanskrit, you've got a, a very active, um, uh, uh, what some call subjunctive, some call optative, but it's very similar to um, uh, the English subjunctive, which we have only in small fragments. And to understand what a subjunctive is on the basis of English is really, really difficult. In Sanskrit, it's there systematically, so it's easy to understand what a subjunctive or optative, however you want to call it, what it might be doing. Um, If you look at um, uh, this idea of case endings or of of, of case, which is something that you've got in many languages, um, in, in English, you've got traces of it, in French, in German, in so many other languages, you've got traces of it. If you see how it works in Sanskrit, it's very easy to understand because it's there, it's systematic, it's visible, it's, it's, it's omnipresent. And so from, just from a linguistic point of view, Sanskrit is an excellent language to help you understand other languages that you might be learning. Now, that's, that's the linguistic point of view. From a, uh, but Sanskrit isn't just a language. It's a language that is used in lots and lots of um, uh, very important and uh, or very beautiful texts. And um, if you learn a language such as um, Latin or ancient Greek, which I greatly recommend, um, they, these, are, these are wonderful too, but if you learn a language such as those, then you, you have access to the literature of a specific um, time period of maybe you know just a few centuries. With Sanskrit, given its history, um, where it was basically fixed in time, frozen in time by the grammarian Panini in around the 5th century BC, you have... Close to two thousand five hundred years of literature written over a huge area, basically the entire um, Indian subcontinent, that are accessible to you if you have understood these these grammatical rules, if you know these these um, these, these grammatical forms, and so on, so the amount of material that you have access to that is uh, incomparable and um, if you are from a culture you know if, not, not from India, but if you are for example from Europe or from um, the Americas. Um, then, seeing Sanskrit, see, seeing Indian thought expressed in Sanskrit is something that shows you, uh, for example, what is what is pan-human and what is culture-specific. And you see that so many, so many of our hopes, of our fears, of the things that we love, of the things that make us happy, of things that are precious to us, are the same the you know the entire world over, and I find that is just something extremely extremely beauty and satis beautiful and and satisfying to see that these people who are from a completely different time from a completely different place are basically you know sort of kin they're basically family they 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 have the same things that move them, the same things that concern them um, and when you find that you can just engage with these minds so intimately, so closely. Then being racist um, or being bigoted in any way becomes really quite difficult. I find.
1: What a what a what an inspiring and eloquent response in terms of um, of of all, all that can be afforded um, through the study of Sanskrit. Now, for for one starting off, um, they'll they'll obviously have a, an excellent tool in this in this. Um, Cambridge introduction of yours and uh, access to online resources and an online community uh, above and beyond um, the various tips that you present in your book and the material. Mm. Do you have any advice for someone starting off?
0: Yes. um, I would say the most important thing is not to expect perfection right away. Um, So when we learn something, um, you know something very very small, very simple. It's wonderful if we can make you know very clearly visible progress in one day with with learning a language um that's you that's you basically um having a go at something that is fairly huge, that is fairly um, intricate, that has many, many different facets. So when you learn anything complex or in this case specifically a language, focus on the steps that you've already taken. So, for example, if you start by learning the the script that Sanskrit is is customarily written in the Devanagari, then set yourself a goal such as, today I want to learn 10 characters. And then once you know those 10 characters, and maybe the day later you come back and you immediately recognize, oh yeah, that's the the letter A, that's the letter uh, T or something like that. Then you know that is something to to enjoy, to be proud of, to be rightly proud of. I always tell my students, you know, to pat themselves on their shoulders once they've once they've done something, rather than focus on the bits that they don't know yet, um, because with with something with anything complex, the bits they don't know yet are usually quite um, um, uh, quite, quite 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 many and quite manifold. Um, and so, set yourself small goals. Be, you know, rejoice in reaching those small goals. And don't feel that you need to achieve perfection. Just focus on making, making progress. A little bit of progress on a regular basis is much better than sitting down to a mammoth session of working on your, your Sanskrit knowledge for three hours all in one go, because then you'll probably be a little bit daunted by the, prog- or by the, by the um Uh, the idea that you might have to spend, you know, three hours on Sanskrit next time you sit down. No, just do things for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes. Um, If you have a commute where you're using public transport, use your flashcards on public transport. Um, If you're taking a shower and you're letting your thoughts wander, then maybe recite a paradigm or two. Um, Just little bits, little bits, and you'll make progress. Focus on the progress and not on anything that you might not know yet, and before you know it, things that might seem unsurmountable, uh, or might have seemed unsurmountable two, three months ago, um, all of a sudden you'll see that, oh, I know these things. And that's something that I say to my my students in class, but in class I am there to remind them of that on a a daily basis. When you're studying these things on your own, you don't have me there to say that to you and to to praise you for what you've done. Uh, So Praise yourself. Be positive.
1: That uh, sage advice uh, deeply resonates. Um, There are many of us who have been using Sanskrit texts for years, and we may not be able to read without a dictionary, for example. That would be a feat for most of us in the Western world. It would be an absolute feat to be able to read Sanskrit, even with the command of the grammar, and have sufficient um, vocabulary to spend 3,000 years of usage. Um, there, there are many of us who, um, you know, uh, give me a Purana or an epic and that's great. And if you point me towards Vedic Sanskrit, I, I, I you know, it's all Greek to me as they say. <laughs> uh, and so, so we, we it, it's such useful advice because it's so easy for us to say, well, well, you know, what do I know? I mean, I, I would never, for example, presume to apply to a Sanskrit position at a university to teach it and yet if i'm tutoring somebody we're we're amazed at actually how much we do know and that we forget yes. how much we know because we're, we're struggling to strive after all all that we lack and it's 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 so ironic this this language is called um samskrita well made or perfected and yet it takes uh, the language itself is 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 a perfected language but it takes such a long time to practice towards mastering that perfection i really like the idea that that Um, that you mentioned and you allude to that this is an organic process this is a a marathon this is one needs to live in and live with the language for some time to really make lasting progress it's not such that you can have downloads once a week for two three hours Uh, it's very much an organic process Um, the the last thing that comes to mind is something that occurred to me throughout the thought that I've had before but it, it, it hit me Uh, throughout our conversation that um, languages are mindsets and to really learn Sanskrit is to really and truly establish uh, a sort of mental training uh, that, that affords you a worldview that, that is um, um, I would say richer, but perhaps that's subjective, but definitely more vast than the worldview you'd have in your, in your um, original language. Um, Oh, absolutely. Would you feel the same way?
0: yes um there are just um uh, with with you know with I find that with each language that you learn and that you're able to either either read or for for modern languages that you're able to communicate in um, there are just so many more thoughts that become accessible to you because um uh, you are able to read what other people say what other people think you are able to hear from from people who are from a different background from a different um, uh, society than you. Uh, and uh, you might be able to access these theoretically if you read about them in translation in a book somewhere, but when you sort of see them lived, um, that that's just a completely different experience, and that's something that 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 moves you and that that you that you remember a lot more easily. Plus, on the very you know basic literal level, um knowing a language allows you to read the text in that language, allows you to um, uh, encounter them without any kind of mediator without, without a translator or something like that. You know, you it's you and the text, it's you and the person who composed this text, um, whether that was a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago, or perhaps even longer than that.
1: Now, um, for anyone who is considering, uh, starting to learn Sanskrit or brushing upon Sanskrit, um, I personally, based on my own resonance with it or, um, Having looked it over, I, I highly recommend you taking a look at the Sanskrit. Sorry, the, the Cambridge Introduction in Sanskrit. Um, we have, of course, been speaking with its author, Dr. Antonia Ruppel of Oxford, uh, the University of Oxford. She's in the Linguistics, Philology, and Phonetics uh, Department. Um, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a fascinating interview.
0: Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.
1: All right. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, keep reading. Uh, Take care and see you soon.